I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. That's an abbreviated version of our inspiring congressional motto, and the, that goal of increasing awareness and understanding of the Constitution is just what the We the People podcast is about. A few weeks ago, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals issued a landmark decision in Zarda versus Altitude Express, Inc., which held that sexual orientation constitutes a form of discrimination when it is the basis for discrimination because of sex in violation of Title VII. Some have predicted that the case will make its way to the Supreme Court, where a decision could have wide-ranging national significance for gay rights, civil rights jurisprudence, and employment law. Joining us to discuss this important case are two of America's leading uh, constitutional scholars and legal commentators. Suzanne Goldberg is Herbert and Doris Weschler, clinical professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she also directs the law school Center for Gender and Sexuality Law and its Sexuality and Gender Law Clinic. She's one of the country's foremost experts on gender and sexuality law and a leading advocate for LGBTQ rights. John Eastman is Henry Salvatore Professor of Law and Community Service and former dean at Chapman University Law School. He is also director of the University's Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence and is affiliated with the Claremont Institute as a senior fellow and director of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence. Suzanne, John, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here. I'm delighted to join you. Thank you. Let's jump right in with the facts of the Zarda case. Suzanne, how did the case come about and why is it that Donald Zarda, a gay man who worked as a skydiving instructor at Altitude Express, came to file a discrimination charge with EEOC about his termination? So the case actually began a fairly long time ago in the summer of 2010. Donald Zarda uh, was a gay man. He worked as a skydiving instructor for a company called Altitude Express. And as part of his job, he uh, participated in tandem skydives, nothing that I've ever done. But what I understand is that the instructor goes up and, and when before the instructor and the student jump out of the plane strapped together, hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder. And when Zarda was doing this with, Donald Zarda was doing this with a female client. Uh, he told her he was gay and had an ex-husband to prove it. And he said later that the reason he mentioned this to her was to put her at ease because uh, he is strapped, you know, quite closely physically to her. Uh, but what happened was she, um, uh, she came, they skydived successfully, got down, and then she told her boyfriend that, that uh, Zarda had inappropriately touched her and disclosed his sexual orientation to excuse his behavior. Uh, and the, Zarda's, her boyfriend told Zarda's boss, and Zarda's boss fired her. And Zarda denied inappropriately touching the client and said that he was fired only because he, uh, of his reference to being gay. So that's where this started, and then he filed a discrimination charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, about his termination, saying that he was discriminated against based on his sexual orientation and his gender. Thank you so much for that. Uh, John, any facts you'd like to add and then tell us what the Second Circuit held and what other appellate courts have held on this question? 
Well, so one, one other uh, component of this that I'd like to bring in is that uh, he filed claims of discrimination based both on New York state law, uh, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, as well as on the basis of sex and race and what have you. Uh, and he also filed a claim on federal law uh, against under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which does not include a ban on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, but rather only on sex. Uh, and the district court and the first round of the panel decision of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on appeals held as it had repeatedly uh, held over the years uh, that Title VII does not include sexual orientation discrimination as one of its prohibited categories uh, and, and dismissed his Title VII action. Uh, the case then proceeded to trial on the state claim, which does include a ban on sexual orientation discrimination, and he lost uh, just on the facts of, of that state claim as well. He then appealed and the Second Circuit affirmed the decision uh, denying any claim under Title VII uh, and upheld the district court's uh, uh, loss of his, of his action on, on the state law claim. Then it went up to the full court of appeals, uh, the court sitting on banc, as they say, the full court. And that's the only court that had the authority uh, at the Second Circuit to overrule its prior decision regarding whether Title VII covered sexual orientation discrimination. And here's the, the, the recent decision from just uh, a, a week ago where the Court of Appeals uh, overruled itself and said, uh, yes, we are now gonna determine that Title VII includes sexual orientation discrimination. Great, thanks so much for that. Well, Suzanne, let's dig into why the uh, Second Circuit uh, majority held that uh, Title VII includes sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, Judge Chief Judge uh, Robert Katzman had at least three uh, theories involving um, sexual stereotyping, associational discrimination, and but-for discrimination. Maybe you can unpack those and, and, and any others you think are relevant. Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. And I don't want to jump too into the weeds of the uh, lower court proceedings. So all I will say, just to add to what John mentioned, is that actually... Um, in the Second Circuit, this issue had this issue of whether Title VII's prohibition against sex discrimination covered discrimination against someone because they are gay had been bubbling up, and um, one of the judges, in particular, in a different ruling, had asked the court on banc, the you know the entire bench of of active justices to review that question because that that Second Circuit judge felt the court was was constrained by an old uh, and and um, uh, incorrect ruling. Okay, so what did the what did the Second Circuit on Banc do? There were three there are three reasons why the court held that Don, Donald Zarda was uh, could, was discriminated based on against based on his sex after having revealed his sexual orientation. Okay, the first is uh, what's called a a um, condition. <laughs> Let me. Uh, I'll break it out into the three, and then I'll I'll dive into to each one. So Title VII prohibits sex discrimination. It applies to any practice in which sex is a motivating factor. The court understands first of all that sexual orientation is defined by one's sex in relation to the sex of those who to whom one is attracted. In other words, it is not possible to treat sexual orientation as something that isn't related to sex. Uh, 
Don Zarda would not have been fired if he had disclosed he was heterosexual. He fired when he was disclosed he was gay. Um, if a uh, he fired because he disclosed he had been uh, uh, because he's attracted to men and um, engages sexually with men or had been married to a man. Right. If a woman flight instructor, uh, uh, skydiving instructor had jumped out of the plane with the client and said she was married to a man, she wouldn't have been fired. So that's the argument. He was discriminated against, but for his sex, because his because he is attracted to people of the same sex. Right. The second point is that discrimination based on sexual orientation is Based is is a is is really a form of gender stereotyping, and here the idea is that many in society expect men to behave like men and women to behave like women, and one of those and and that is that form of gender stereotyping is prohibited under Title VII. Right, an employer can't say legally, um, you were you know you. Uh, I'm sure we'll get in a little bit, but you were a, uh, we would have accepted you, but you're too aggressive as a, a woman when we would have accepted that aggressiveness in a man. And so here the idea is there's a expectation in areas that women should man or be engaged with men and men with women. And so being gay, being in, uh, uh, having a sexual orientation towards someone of the same sex defies gender role expectations. It's not what we expect. And that is, and discriminate on that basis is a form of, of sex discrimination. And the third is also quite straightforward, which is that sexual orientation discrimination in this way is associational discrimination. And that is Zarda was discriminated against because of his association with men. And that association is, he wouldn't have been discriminated against if he was associated with women. And, uh, in connection with sexual orientation, and that too is a form of sex discrimination. So three theories. One is he would have treated this way for his sex. Second, sexual orientation discrimination is a form of gender stereotyping. And third is uh, sex discrimination includes discrimination against it based on sex of the people that you Thanks so much for that. Uh, John Judge Gerald Lynch had an extensive dissent in the Zarda case in which he said that uh, Congress, as an original matter in 1964, didn't intend to include sexual orientation discrimination when it included the phrase because of sex. Tell us more about Judge Lynch's dissent and any responses he had to the majority. Well, I mean, the, 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 the principal response here, and it was in this dissent, it was in the Seventh Circuit's dissent from Judge Sykes uh, uh, last, last spring, um, uh, and in the number of other courts that have declined to take this step, as the Second Circuit and the Seventh Circuit have now done, uh, and that is, uh, you know, basic constitutional premise that uh, our laws are made by Congress. They're made with the House of Representatives and the Senate. And they have to be presented to the president and signed. Uh, and once the laws are on the books, that's what is governs us. And any changes in the law need to be made by that same process, not by uh, judges simply deciding that the, it's come time for the law to change. Um, and, and we have very clear language and understanding in 1964 uh, what sex discrimination meant, and it did not include uh, any claims of sexual orientation. In fact, so clear was that as part of the understanding that for decades people have been trying to amend Title VII 
to include sexual orientation discrimination, and those efforts have never succeeded. Um, and, it's, you know, it's almost like, well, why bother with all those efforts if we could have just done this with some judges? Uh, and, and so it's a, it's a very basic separation of powers argument. Who has the authority um, to make changes in the law? Uh, you know, because every time you, you, you change the law like this and you expand or con- uh, uh, prohibitions on employment discrimination or what have you, you, you limit the ability of people to choose who they're going to hire, what have you. And so th- these are not... Uh, 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 simple, simple one-way only uh, effects. There are trade-offs on on what people can do here, and who makes those trade-offs in our system of government is the legislature, not the executive solely. And this is another underlying aspect of this case. During the time uh, that Mr. Zardo's uh, uh, case was pending, uh, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission under President Obama altered its own interpretation of federal law to, to come uh, a, a, along the lines of Mr. Zarda's claim here. Um, uh, and, and, you know, just again by executive action. And, you know, there's a real challenge to whether the executive has that authority as well. Now, uh, piece by piece, he, of course, rejected every one of the arguments and carefully parsed through how sex discrimination is not the same thing as sexual orientation discrimination, how this is not it was not because of his gender stereotyping. This is not the kind of gender stereotyping cause of action that the Supreme Court upheld 30 years ago now in a case called Price Waterhouse, uh, where women were expected to dress or behave a certain way. And when they didn't, um, uh, they were discriminated against because of that sex, uh, gender stereotyping of how women ought to act. Uh, and, and so rejected the claim here that that applies broadly to sexual orientation claims and then also rejected uh, the associational discrimination claim um, that these are not uh, the type of things we normally see in, in association. And rather what's going on here is Mr. Zarda and his lawyers uh, and then the Seventh, uh, Second Circuit uh, ju- uh, Court on Bonk was basically trying to rewrite the law by shoehorning in these arguments to make it seem as though sexual orientation discrimination was really sex discrimination and therefore already covered by Title VII. All those 40 years of trying to amend the statute was just a waste of time because it already did what we what we what we wanted it to achieve. Um, and and so you know again basic down to the to the basic brass tacks here. Where in our system? of constitutional government is the authority to change the law. Is it with unelected judges or is it rather with the legislature? And that's the kind of mainstay of his argument. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Suzanne, I want our listeners to have a sense of where this is in the lower courts and and what the Supreme Court might do. Is it fair to say that uh, Judge Lynch was correct that Congress didn't intend to include sexual orientation in the Civil Rights Act as an original matter uh, and to do so requires applying the three arguments you uh, suggested and and the 11th Circuit has refused to recognize the claim uh, while both the 7th and 2nd Circuit have recognized the claim. How, 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 how are these arguments faring in the lower courts um, and, and, and give us a sense of uh, how other judges might rule? Uh, sure. And I, I think I ought to start by saying, uh, addressing um, and respectfully disagreeing with John's point, which is that the job of courts is to interpret statutes or apply statutes to the cases that are uh, before them. This is in the nature of what courts do. So I don't think there's a simple separation of power answers to the answer that can tell us whether what a court did in a particular instance is right or wrong. 
Um, but how is this playing out in the lower courts? Um, so the two most recent decisions on the question whether Title VII's prohibition on sex, sex discrimination reaches sexual orientation discrimination, the two most recent decisions are from the Seventh Circuit and this decision in Zarda from the Second Circuit. And in both of those, a majority of the en banc court that is, um, I haven't, I don't have that count in front of me, but um, a majority of more than 10 judges, I would say on both, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, said yes, Title VII's sex discrimination prohibition covers sexual orientation. And they explained that they reached that interpretation or that application based on uh, prior Supreme Court case law interpreting Title VII uh, both with respect to gender stereotyping and and then lower court uh, case law on associational uh, discrimination and basic understanding of the terms of the statute that this is but discrimination but for Zarda's sex. So will this case reach the Supreme Court? Um, so far, the Supreme Court has declined the opportunity to take up this question in the 11th Circuit case that involved a hospital employee who was discriminated against uh, in part because she's a lesbian. Now, there, are, there were procedural complications with that case that might have led the court to decline review. Um, in the Seventh Circuit case that involved discrimination against an adjunct professor at a community college who had applied repeatedly for uh, promotions and had been denied, uh, Ivy Tech Community College declined to appeal. We don't know yet whether Altitude Express, the defendant in the Zarda case, will appeal. What we do know is that the, the lawyer for the company has said to reporters that the company actually agrees that Title VII sex discrimination law covers sexual orientation discrimination and that the company just disagrees about the facts in this case and whether Zarda was discriminated against. But just to step back and, and, and put this in a, in a larger context, uh, what we've seen now for many years is a strong understanding in the lower courts that sex discrimination encompasses more than, say, want ads that say, you know, only men need apply for a job. So over the years, as courts have interpreted this one word sex in Title VII, they have come to recognize both at the lower courts and in the Supreme Court that sex discrimination also includes sexual harassment, that it also includes gender stereotyping, that it also includes gender stereotyping when an individual is transgender. So there has been a lot of evolution since 1964 when Title VII first came in uh, came into being. Uh, thanks for that, J John. Uh, is that an accurate uh, characterization of the state of the law in the lower courts about the expansion of Title VII to include sexual stereotyping? And in light of that, um, imagine that the Supreme Court does take the case, uh, try to game it out, and in particular, how do you think Justice Kennedy might rule on the statutory question? And, and I think the real uh, $64,000 question there is whether Justice Kennedy will still be on the court uh, when this issue gets there for him to be the deciding vote. And I think most people uh, do think he's probably the deciding vote at the current uh, moment. If he if he retires this summer, as many people anticipate that he may well do, uh, I understand that he's been telling potential clerks that that's a distinct possibility. 
uh, and then we replace him with somebody else, uh, it's a it's an entirely different ball game. We would be going into a court that one most observers uh, suspect may well be four to four split on this issue, and that new new uh, appointment may well be the deciding vote. Um, so it's a little hard to predict what the Supreme Court would do. Uh, I, I think there's something broader at stake, though. We oftentimes uh, in these kind of cases get caught up on the particular issue. Uh, should we uh, have sexual orientation discrimination or not? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Those are inherently legislative judgments. And I think the main dispute between the majority in the Second Circuit and the uh, en banc majority in the Seventh Circuit uh, that that have held Title VII now. I mean, I don't think either one of those courts would have said it actually uh, in 1964 when it was passed included sexual orientation discrimination. Um, uh, so they all acknowledge that they are updating the statute, or or to use Judge Sykes's criticism from the Seventh Circuit, um, uh, quoting Judge Posner, this is a bit of judicial interpretive updating. Well, that's not the judicial role. The judicial role is not to update the statutes, to make them current with what we think ought to be the law now. The judicial role is to interpret the law as it's written. Uh, and if we're going to change the law as it's written, it's not to kind of come up with new theories to pretend something that clearly didn't exist 50 years ago when this law was passed. Um, now should exist and be part of it because we want it to be, and therefore it is. Uh, that, that completely undermines the basic notion of separation of powers, that it's the legislature that makes us changes in the law. Uh, Judge Sykes said this is circumvention of the legislative process. It's a statutory amendment um, courtesy of unelected judges. Uh, and and, it's, and the, this is not coming from judges that necessarily disagree uh, with the outcome. Uh, 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 Judge, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Judge Lynch's uh, opening against speaking solely as a citizen, I would be delighted to wake up one morning and learn that Congress had passed legislation adding sexual orientation as one of the categories in Title VII. Or I'd be equally pleased to learn that Congress had secretly done this back in 1964, and we just, uh, you know, that was kind of lying uh, sleeping there, and we're therefore um, merely interpreting what was there all along. No, this is, and, and this is the main point of contention between the majorities in these two cases uh, and the dissents, and then joining the dissents are most of the other lower courts in the country, um, that, that the, the, the mechanism to change the law here, to expand Title VII's coverage, is to go through Congress uh, rather than have judges just do it. Now, granted, uh, and, and you know, the, the Supreme Court, in dealing with sex discrimination, has said there are other kind of things than simply, um, you know, what probably promoted or prompted Congress to include sex discrimination in Title VII in the first place. Um, come to work for me, you're going to be the secretary, you don't get to be the real estate agent. Come to work for me, if you want to advance to be the real estate agent, uh, go out on a date with me and, uh, and uh, stay the night with me. Uh, those kind of things. Uh, vintage sex discrimination, and then the court over time recognized that there are other things that also qualify as sex discrimination, other factual circumstances. Those are difference in the degree of what constituted what was already prohibited uh, by Title VII. But, but this new step, changing sex discrimination to include sex orientation discrimination, trying to piggyback off of those developments in Supreme Court law, is radically, uh, uh, really to, to uh, uh, cause a rather dramatic change in the basic substance of the law itself. And that's the point of the dissents, 
in, in these cases and, and the majority in the 11th Circuit and elsewhere in the country, um, you don't have the authority as an unelected judge to change the law in that fashion. This is not mere interpretation. This is acting as a legislator changing the law because this is what you think the law ought to be. Many thanks for that. Suzanne, John puts the question as one between judges who are willing to engage in judicial updating and those who aren't, and suggests that it could be divided on the court between liberals and conservatives. I always tell our We the People listeners not to assume that it's all politics and instead to attend to the methods of interpretation that are leading the judges to reach their different decisions. Here, have there been conservative judges on lower courts who have held that sexual orientation discrimination is covered by Title VII? And what is the theory of interpretation that both sides are engaging in? Is this a question of liberal textualists against conservative purposivists? And how does that square with their general approach to interpretation? Help, help, help us figure this out from an interpretive point of view. Sure. Uh, it, I haven't done the empirical research to make the sort of align the political people's political parties with their votes on these issues. However, I will say that the interpretive issue is, is not and should not be a partisan one. So to pick up where uh, John on, 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 on two points. One, I want to agree with John that it's not appropriate for judges to say, I would like a certain kind of protection to be part of the law, and therefore I am going to add it without reference to what the legislature has done. But what is appropriate for judges to do is to take the term before them and to apply it to the facts at hand in light of the evolution of the law, and in this case in particular, in light of understanding how the Supreme Court has interpreted the term sex in Title VII. And so John offered the examples um, that, you know, it's clear that sex discrimination law under Title VII covers a situation where a, an employer says, come to work for me, but if you're a woman, you can have only the secretary job or come to work for me, but if you want to work here, you have to date me. And what Don Zardis' claim was, was that Altitude Express said to him, in effect, come work for me, but because you're a man, you have to date women, not men, right? That's the sex discrimination here. Now, so we, so then you've raised the question, what, is, what sort of interpretive approach is this? And what the court has offered is really um, the Second Circuit has has begun its analysis and right it, it, its central uh, central point of reasoning is that the word sex in the text of the statute covers this situation, right? We can't understand Don Zarda's claim of discrimination other than by reference to sex because he is saying. I would not have been fired if I had told the client that I had been married to a woman, right? I was fired because I told the client I was married to a man, right? So that's sex discrimination. It uses the word sex in the statute uh, and applies it to this context. The court over the Supreme Court and lower courts over the years have also interpreted the word sex within Title VII, right? So Title VII prohibits sex discrimination in the terms and conditions of employment. And that means not only 
um, a prohibition on employers saying these jobs are reserved for men and these are reserved for women. But also, you know, when a person comes into the workplace, they have to have the same opportunity to function in the workplace uh, without regard to sex, right? So you can't be uh, subjected to harassment before because of your sex or we can't we we don't permit employers to expect one way of behaving from the men in the workplace and another from the women. Uh, that's the gender stereotyping theory. And that is looking at the term sex within the context of Title VII's prohibition against this kind of discrimination in the terms of conditions of employment and applying it directly both in those contexts and then in this one. Many thanks for that. Uh, John, any responses that you think are appropriate? And then help us think through the interpretive question. Chief Judge Katzman, who wrote the majority opinion in the Second Circuit case, has written a book about statutory interpretation. He says it's appropriate to look to legislative history and that Justice Sco the late Justice Scalia was wrong to say, don't look at the purpose uh, because Justice Scalia did care about purpose in legislative history when it came to constitutional interpretation. Here, though, it seems like it's the liberals who are the textualists not looking at purpose, and it's the conservatives who are the purposivists and not looking at the text. So help us sort that one out. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I disagree with your characterization there. I think uh, the conservative, and I don't want to put it in conservative versus liberal, because uh, as you, I think, intimated a moment ago, a very prominent judge, now retired judge, uh, who uh, has often been characterized as conservative, Judge Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit, joined the majority opinion there. Um, uh, and was open to criticism. Now, I've long been of the view that Judge Posner um, was not a constitutional conservative, which meant, you know, kind of staying confined within his judicial role. Uh, he rather took his role on the bench to try to, uh, as, a, as an old common law judge, whose job it was to alter the law in, in, uh, in response to changing circumstances or what he believed to be changing circumstances to make the law better. Well, that's not our system of government. And so the main, the main disagreement here is between um, uh, you know, do we interpret the law as written or do we adjust it, update it, interpretive update it in order to make it uh, uh, come out the way uh, we think would be better given the changed circumstances since the law was written? And those are two dramatically different modes of uh, understanding the role of the judiciary. Uh, and they are uh, different modes that divide the Supreme Court, divide much of the country right now. Uh, one I'll, I'll call originalism, whether it's constitutional originalism, interpreting the Constitution as it was written and ratified and understood at the time it was written, um, using the amendment process set out in it to make changes to it, or do we have rather uh, a Constitution that lives and changes and evolves, uh, to use Suzanne's word a moment ago, uh, to, to reflect changes in the times. Uh, and those two different modes of constitutional interpretation also, I think, apply to statutory interpretation in cases like this one. Uh, and it's not, you know, the, the, the conservatives are looking at the legislative history and not the text. I think, you know, the text as it was understood in 1964 indisputably did not include sexual orientation, uh, as Judge Lynch points out in his, in his dissent. Uh, almost in almost every state at the time in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, homosexual conduct was criminalized. Uh, so the notion that that word conveyed that we were covering sexual orientation at the time it was passed, uh, whether you look to the legislative history or not, uh, the, the text is pretty clear. Uh, then if you look at the legislative history, if the text was ambiguous, uh, you look to the legislative history to try and resolve the ambiguities. 
uh, and there's no question the legislative history uh, supports the view uh, unambiguously that sexual orientation was not covered uh, under the umbrella of sex discrimination ban in Title VII. Um, so, so under either of those methodologies, you, you get the same answer here is what that language meant when it was passed. And so therefore, we necessarily have to be saying we are changing the law through this interpretation. Yes, we're going to try and find clever ways to pretend that it's exactly sex discrimination as it was envisioned when 1964 passed. But, but everybody knows that's not what 64 Civil Rights Act did. Uh, if that were the case, why have we been fighting since the 1970s to amend the law to include sexual orientation? Why not just advance those interpretive arguments then? Well, the reason is because the political process uh, since the 1970s, when those efforts began, has never had a sufficiently uh, sufficient strength to alter the language. Uh, and that really goes to then the heart of the separation of powers thing. If this can't get through the legislature, through the legislative process, because uh, the American people are not willing to support such a change, um, you know, trying to pretend that the law has always said this anyway uh, through these creative interpretations of it really undermines the notion of who governs in this country and who the ultimate sovereignty is. And, and so, you know, quite apart from the sexual orientation issue, which is kind of the third rail in American politics right now, we have a, a very core question here of who, whether we're going to govern ourselves, whether we're going to decide what kind of changes in the law are going to be made, uh, we the, the, the people, or whether that's going to be done for us because uh, a majority of an 11-judge panel in New York City decides that the law uh, should change and then we're going to rationalize how we get there with these with these you know, creative lawyer arguments. I mean, that's, that's the stake, and I think that's why even a judge like Judge Lynch, who fully supports the effort to change the law, uh, rights in dissent here. Uh, and this is just not the way we do it in this country. It really undermines basic notions of constitutional governance. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, Suzanne, I'll ask you, if the Supreme Court were to rule against the sexual orientation discrimination claim, what are the chances for a federal anti-discrimination bill passing such as the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which you have proposed, which would prohibit sexual orientation discrimination. How many states have these laws on the books? And, and what are the chances for sexual orientation discrimination uh, being forbidden in the political process? Yeah, great questions. If I could just hop back first and respond to one, one point of many points that John made, um, which is that, just a quick example, in 1961, the the, the a, there was a constitutional question, could women be excused from jury service? And the court said yes, because of the special responsibilities of women, right? In 1986, or in 1986, the question before the court was, did the constitution uh, allow states to criminalize sexu consensual sexual relationships in private between adults? The court said yes. Both of those decisions have been reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And then when the question came up to the Supreme Court, did Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination cover same-sex sex, same sexual harassment, 
you might think on John's theory, the court would say, no, of course not, because that wasn't in the minds of Congress, neither sexual harassment nor sexual harassment between people of the same sex when Congress enacted Title VII in 1964. But in fact, in, uh, within a unanimous opinion written by Justice Scalia, the court said, yes, Title VII's prohibition on sex discrimination covers sexual harassment, including between people of the same sex. The point being that the word sex has been interpreted both on cons by conservative and more liberal justices over time to reach exactly the kind of conduct that we're, in, that we're talking about uh, here as well. Um, on the political question, um, not quite half of the states in the country have laws that prohibit sexual orientation discrimination. An overwhelming of majority of an overwhelming majority of Americans believe that that um, employers should not discriminate based on sexual orientation, which leads to a lot of popular support for the Employment Discrimination Employment Non Discrimination Act, uh, which has been blocked from proceeding in Congress. Um, will it pass at some point? I do think so, uh, but I want to be clear on one more point. Um, which, which is this, one of the questions that comes up is, well, you know, efforts at the federal level, have, you know, there have been many decades now of efforts to add sexual orientation to federal anti-discrimination law. And the fact that it has not been added, some would argue, including John just now, means that sexual orientation isn't included in the sex discrimination prohibition. That, I think, is incorrect. And as both the Second Circuit and this, in this case, and the Supreme Court have both recognized in, on many occasions, legislative inaction is not a strong foundation for arguing about what a term in a statute means or doesn't mean. We all know that Congress does and does not pass laws for a variety of reasons. Um, some may be related to the terminology, others may be related to politics, gridlock, who knows. Uh, so when we look at the question, ultimately, in this case, it really is the jurisprudential one, the, the application of sex in Title VII, and there, I think, the Second Circuit majority of the en banc court had it right. And I think, too, it is valuable on the political front for discussions to continue about adding what it, statutory protections as well. Many thanks for that. John, last word to you. Uh, what are the chances for the states or Congress forbidding sexual orientation discrimination? And why do you think that the Zarda case is important? Well, you know, there's, the Zarda case, like several recent Supreme Court cases, uh, all authored by Justice Kennedy that Suzanne uh, referenced, I, I think indicate that the courts are trying to push this issue. The American people have not uh, joined in the effort. If, if the, the numbers were as, as large as uh, Suzanne claims, I would have expected we would have already seen passage of ENDA. But the fact of the matter is ENDA has been introduced in every Congress since 1994 except one. Uh, similar legislation started being introduced back in 1974, uh, just 10 years after the 64 Civil Rights Act. Um, and it, 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 those statutes have not just been blocked through some procedural m measure, but they, they, they have never garnered anywhere near the majority support that would be necessary to change the law here. And I don't think this is just an, a, a, an example of Congress's inaction uh, 
not being used to interpret what the law meant. I think this is a pretty fit, consistent 50 years of efforts to change the law, which is a pretty significant indication uh, that the folks that are introducing these amendments understood the 64 Civil Rights Act, Title VII, did not already include sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, to, uh, to put it in comparison, there's no question um, that, that, for example, in the immigration context, people who are in this country illegally don't have the authority to work. Uh, President Obama tried to change that through his DACA and DAPA programs, but that effort to change it uh, was in the face of decades of efforts to change the law in Congress and pretty much an acknowledgement that the law on the books did not accomplish what uh, they would have liked to see. That's the issue. It's um, uh, Yes, it's uh, tied to the question of LGBTQ rights, uh, but the real issue is who has the authority to change the law in this country? Is it Congress or is it an unelected judiciary? Uh, however much but there are people like Judge Lynch who say, I would like to see the law change this way, but that's not my role under Article Three of the Constitution. My job is rather to interpret, not to change the law, not to use creative interpretation to change the law. And we have to admit that that's what's going on here. And Judge Posner, to his credit and his candor, admits that that's what he's doing. Um, and I think that's the important thing, because that goes right to the heart of constitutional government. We're not talking about a constitutional issue here uh, where the court uh, has to uh, uh, recognize and interpret to protect individual rights. We are talking about mere statutory interpretation that can be changed by Congress if it chooses to do so. Uh, whether Congress will or not, I think will remain to be seen. But uh, I think the, the basic premise that it is Congress's job to make these changes in the law and not an unelected judiciary. I think that issue remains central to this fight as so many other fights in our country. And I really think the very nature of constitutionalism is at stake and at risk uh, with some of these decisions. Thank you so much, John Eastman and Suzanne Goldberg, for an illuminating, vigorous, and truly educational discussion of this crucial question involving uh, the interpretation of statute and sexual orientation law. Uh, we the People listeners, your homework, if you choose to accept it, is Chief Judge Katzman's book on statutory interpretation, the late uh, Justice Scalia's book, A Matter of Interpretation, which presents the opposite point of view, and then read that Second Circuit decision, the majority and the dissent, and if you find that your policy preferences are clashing with your legal conclusions, then write to me and tell me, Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. That is our goal here at We the People, to be guided by the light of the Constitution and of law. Suzanne, John, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Great conversation. Today's show was engineered and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. There's credit for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Finally, and most importantly, with thanks to those of you who are writing to me to tell me what you think of the podcast, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.